Welcome back to Let's Talk Reform. I'm Nuha Nakvi. In the last episode, we introduced the concept of the school-to-prison pipeline and talked about how racial disparities in American schools fuel higher dropout and incarceration rates for children of color. However, we didn't look at the other end of the pipeline. What policies funnel at-risk youth into the American prison system? And why are youth of color disproportionately arrested and imprisoned? Today, my colleague Bryce Calco and I will be speaking with Marcy Mistret, who has been the CEO at the Campaign for Youth Justice since 2014. The Campaign for Youth Justice is a national initiative dedicated to ending the practice of prosecuting, sentencing, and incarcerating youth under the age of 18 in the adult criminal justice system. In the decades since the organization opened, more than 35 states have changed their laws making it more difficult to treat children as adults by launching campaigns that are anchored in the experiences of the youth and families most impacted by these policies. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. So good to see you. Um, So again, thank you so much for joining us, Marcy Mistret the head of the Campaign for Youth Justice. How did you get involved with working to reform the justice system, specifically for the youth? Um, This has been a calling of mine since I was probably in high school. Um, I did a couple of, you know, shadow days and stuff with young people who are justice involved and really felt a calling to both the racial and social justice issues that were really paramount. When I went to graduate school, it was in the 1990s. So that's when all of this laws and rhetoric around young people uh, being treated as if they were adults started. Um, and I happened to be in Chicago and that was really an epicenter for a lot of this. So it, it was just so profoundly wrong that it really called to me. So I was really fortunate to be able to be a social work student placed in a legal clinic and to be able to work with lawyers on some of these individual cases. Wow, that's really, that's really incredible. What do you think today is the biggest issue facing youth in the justice system? Look, the, the youth justice system has done a lot in terms of right sizing in terms of right-sizing the system, right? So in the 90s, one of the things that we did was to basically say the only tool in the toolbox is to incarcerate children. And our numbers went up so, so high. I think there's been a lot of research and findings and out, you know, and think, uh, understanding about how kids develop um, that has moved the field to treating many children who really have high needs, but maybe don't show high risk for public safety to get treated in their community, which with much better results. Like we have, we have very clearly established that incarceration is a criminal, you know, criminogenic factor, right? So pretty much if if you lock a kid up, you are increasing their chances of being locked up again. So I think we've adjusted the you know, the continuum in a right way. I think what we haven't really struggled with, and this is a long way to get to the answer to your question, but I think what we haven't yet reconciled is when children do engage in violence, what is the appropriate response? Our, our response is still the, the same hammer on the same nail. 
And a lot of that means we're treating them as adults. We're taking away their childhood. Um, and it is falling so heavily on children, um, particularly black boys, but children from urban areas who we know have very high exposure to trauma and violence in their own communities. And so instead of, we still have not reconciled that. How do we deal with trauma without a carceral response? So I would say that's the biggest nut we still have to crack. Um, though in saying that, I'm also recognizing that that is a very small percent of the population of young people who we continue to arrest. So even though our arrest rates have fallen to the lowest point in 50 years, it is still, most of the kids who are locked up are still kids with misdemeanors, low level offenses, or, or technical violations of probation. So, you know, we still got to squeeze down, but we really have to, we really have to reckon with what happens when somebody physically harms or injures or kills another person. We haven't fixed that yet. But you'd say that a majority of the cases that are, that are represented in our juvenile justice system are not violent. It's not violent crime. Children do not, are not the drivers of violent crime in this country. They never have been. They are much more likely to be victimized by crime or self-injure as a result of being injured than to perpetrate crime, mm. right? Yeah. So I guess the a lot of what still needs to happen is that reframe in the media and then kind of the shift. I think, you know, the American public from victims to conservatives to liberal folks have all agreed that they want rehabilitation. All polling has been consistent for at least 20 years. They want rehabilitation for kids. Um, they do, people believe that children can change. Um, but we have not followed that with dollars <laughs> or practice enough. Hmm. And so you kind of, you, you, you did touch on this just now, um, that a lot of these kids are exposed to trauma as children. They're exposed to trauma in their own communities. Um, are there any other social determinants or psychosocial factors that can drive drive to juvenile court involvement. And I mean, I think for one, we can, we can say um, crime maybe in one's community, like the crime that they observe. Would that yeah. be a fair statement? I, I think, you know, we hear from kids who are in the very deep end of the system. It would have never occurred to me to put a gun in somebody's face till somebody did that to me. Hmm. Right. So that's what I'm talking about. Victimization. I think family violence is a big piece of it. Again, our only, we have not evolved in our, we have evolved a little bit in our solutions to family violence, but we really haven't approached it with a trauma lens. We know, um, we know the stress that happens on families when there's family, when there's family violence, whether that's between two adults or between children and adults. And we've got to figure out a way our, our response has still been removal. It's either removal of the mother, the, the children from the parents. It's a removal of the, of one of the two adults from each other. It's the removal of a, of a kid because of a fight with a parent or grandparent. We're still operating from the removal approach. And I think what we have to do is figure out, I mean, you want people to be safe. So maybe that removal is temporary to, till tempers go down and you can kind of really get to the structural pieces, but we need a systemic response and we're still doing individual responses and that's not going to move the needle. Okay. You know, and of course, when you put race, um, 
when you put race, racism and structural racism and white supremacy under all of that, it just exacerbates things to the nth degree. We, I mean, our courts really do not believe that black families can take care of their children. Hmm. How do you think that the, the goals of the current racial justice protests tie into the need for reforming the education system and where that plays a role in the school to prison pipeline? So I think the folks in the, in the school justice reform movement have had that racial justice lens for a long time, mm -hmm. right? We, we have known that there, and actually the, um, there was just a statement recently that came out that said the rescinded, like there is no correlation <laughs> between school resource officers and safety. So basically where school shootings happen, where these kind of like, big mass shootings happen that get the news and the front page news are not in the same places where we place school resource officers. So those are generally white, suburban, rural, maybe still disconnected young people because, you know, either again, unaddressed trauma, mental, unaddressed mental health, unaddressed access, too many access to guns, all of those pieces together. Um, but where the resource officers and policing of young people happens is in often fall ends up being in urban areas um, that are mostly kids of color. So I feel like that analysis has been there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I think what you're seeing, you know, and Black Lives Matter has been around for a near, I mean, we're getting closer to the decade to the non, than the non-decade side of things. Um, and people are just now understanding that it's a real thing. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that, that's right. You know, and the abolitionist framework is still very, very resisted. Um, I think all of us in the movement have held it as sacred space, that abolitionist movement um, is something to move, you know, is a place, is our North Star goal, if you will. Um, but we are ju that's just becoming acceptable language in kind of the, the broader movement building work. Right. So I want to, I want to talk about, uh, the campaign for youth justice. And, um, I really want to hear about why the campaign was founded and what is the mission? What was the mission at the founding and what is the mission today? So it hasn't changed over 15 years. Um, I would say we got clearer on kind of, as data and research came out, we got clearer on, on ways to kind of move the needle quicker. Um, but our mission has always been um, to end the prosecution, sentencing, and incarceration of youth under 18 in the adult criminal justice system. And that's still true, right? Um, I think where there is nuance now is, is 18 enough right? Adolescent development and brain research has said actually you can be pushing up to age 24, 25 in that. Um, we have been very clear that you got to start with the under 18s and then we can move to this more emerging adult um, section. But I think that that's a reckoning for folks. And I think we've started to see, you know, Vermont raise the age to 20 for many, many charges. Um, and there is an expansion of kind of this emerging adult justice investments. So that, that's shifted a little bit, um, but we have been very, very clear that the age of criminal responsibility needs to, at a minimum, be 18, that children cannot be housed in adult jails or prisons, mm -hmm. and that um, kids, 
to send a child to the adult system is so serious that there needs to be judicial review in a in a you know with a full hearing where kids have representation before they get moved to the adult system we there's no place for automatic transfer um and those those really haven't shifted right i think what's shifted is the buy-in the research the validators of that approach um has shifted <laughs> to be much more a broader uh tent if you will right so what were your initial goals for the organization and where are you now today 15 years later in reaching those goals mm -hmm. so i would say that the numbers have dropped it was estimated when we opened that there was 250,000 children a year that were charged as adults um, that number has dropped the most recent national numbers we have was from 2015 and that was 76,000 um, we're pretty sure at the end of by the end of 2020 that will be halved again to under 40,000 um, children because of the raise the age initiatives um, and then that will continue to fall uh, children who are um, transferred to the adult system so not ones that are automatically excluded has also similarly fallen and that goes back to what i was saying um as the approach to young people in the system has changed many of those young people people have bought into the well brought into the research basically that says children are best served in their communities with their families from a, a developmental approach that engages families in the solutions so um with that practice we've also seen youth crime continue to fall excellent excellent so you can decarcerate, mm -hmm. you can keep kids in their communities and crime can fall at the same time. We can hold those two truths as reality. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I just I have one follow-up question and I know Bryce has some questions as well. So with the Raise the Age uh, initiatives, um, state by state, would you say that overall, a major do a majority of states in the US, um, are they all at 18 or above 18? Thanks for asking that point of clarity. Um, so when we opened about, a, it was um, nearly a third of states did not have 18 as their number. There was 14 states that said it lower than 18. We're now down to three. Wow. So that's a huge, huge win, right? So, um, so we've got Georgia, Texas, and Wisconsin left. Um, we think that's about 30 to 33,000 kids a year. Um, Seven, there, there are only 17 year olds, uh, the vast majority of whom should be, would be served if they raise the age by the juvenile justice system. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's incredible. Well, that's, mm -hmm. that is quite a feat, what progress you've made uh, in 15 yeah. years. Yeah, and the other thing, just to build on that, there's also been transfer reform in almost half of the states. So 24 states have changed their laws, making it harder to transfer kids automatically into the adult system. So that also narrows, you know, another bucket of young people that frankly raise the age doesn't oftentimes touch those kids. If a, um, states have so many different ways that they can transfer a young person into the adult system, one of the shortcomings of raising the age has been that it still carves out kids with more serious charges. Mm -hmm. um, and there's still ways for those kids to get to the adult system. But generally what we've seen happen, and the Justice Policy Institute wrote a really good piece on this, um, talking about what happened after states, the first round of states raised the age, they generally went back and said, we're transferring too many kids. And they narrowed that transfer statute as well. Um, and we've seen 
we've seen six states now that actually have removed one of the vehicles to get kids in the into the adult system entirely. So that's that's really big progress from where we were in the 1990s. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's good stuff. So the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention is an office of the Department of Justice that sets priorities to guide federal policies on juvenile justice issues. This office also awards funding to support state and community efforts to develop effective prevention and intervention programs to improve the juvenile justice system. So when speaking about the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, what factors have we seen that have caused changes in the allocation of their annual funding from year to year or just over the past five years? There's a couple things. Uh, um, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention was established by an, a law in 1974 called the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act or JJDPA. Um, overall, the federal government has largely kept their hands off the state juvenile justice systems. They feel like it is a state and local issue. Um, and the big win with that, with the JJDPA came after a series of litigation that, uh, in the states that showed that kids who were placed into delinquency, kind of some of the protections ended up being, ended up sending them there for really egregious amounts of time with no due process, no protections. They were lingering behind walls that no one knew about because of privacy. Um, and so the JJDPA was created to kind of establish what we call a floor or a base minimum of um, protections for children that do go into the justice system. The over time, that law has created four core protections for children. So if states want federal dollars, they have to agree to monitor, comply, and report on those factors. Um, they include not locking up status offenders. Status offenders are children whose behavior is considered a crime solely because of their age, things like that that, would, that you can never charge adults with. So you can't charge an adult with breaking a curfew or skipping school or insubordination or being a runaway, right? Those are things that are tied ex explicitly to um, the minor status of youth, right? So the first thing was those kids aren't public aren't threats to public safety, they should not be incarcerated. The second two were closely linked. They were that children with, um, that are charged with delinquency um, behaviors should not be placed in adult jails, right? And so, um, and so they said, if you do that, you're not, you're gonna get penalized, you're not gonna get your full federal dollars. Um, and there was um, a little bit of a wiggle room there. So in rural communities where the closest appropriate youth placement might be three or four hours away, they said, okay, well, if you have to temporarily hold a child till you can get them to a safer, more age appropriate place, they have to be sight and sound separated from adults. And then the last piece was states need to start collecting data on how we are treating children from different racial backgrounds to look at disproportionate minority contact along the system right so states have now had a you know had a report on these things in order to get federal dollars 
Um, that JJDPA um, has basically two concrete pools of funding authorized by the act. The first is the formula grants, which I just referred to, which means if you, if you participate in the act and you report on those four core protections, you get a form, you get a percentage of, you know, a chunk of federal funding. And you're supposed to use that federal dollars to make sure that you're complying with those four core protection and improving your youth justice system. Um, the second piece is in what we call Title V, which is um, delinquency prevention dollars. And that chunk also is meant to get really to shrink the system on the front end, build out your community, um, your continuum of care in the community and prevent young people from having contact with the youth justice system at all. We went through a period of time um, in, at the turn of this century, um, the act was reauthorized in 2002 and then not again till 2018. And what happens with federal law, particularly when it's convenient for Congress to say this, um, if budgets are tight or whatever else, if there's other spending priorities, they'll say, well, you haven't been reauthorized in 16 years, so we're gonna cut, 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 because clearly this isn't a value, because if it was a value, you would be reauthorized. So the funding dropped incredibly during that time, and that's a problem. It's a problem for a lot of reasons. It's a problem for states to continue to comply with the act, because diminishing returns, right? You're asking us to collect all this data, report on it, um, all of that costs money, and if you're not going to give us any money, why should we participate? And that's a real danger to children, especially in places who um, aren't politically inclined to follow those base minimum requirements. Um, and then the second piece, um, the second piece is that when the fed when federal law comes out, it generally uh, follows state practice, right? Um, and so you really want you really want to keep pushing that needle and the and the support from the federal government is a nod that says most states agree with this right we have we've funded research to support it um, we're backing our beliefs and our values with dollars etc um, so funding funding for youth justice dollars fell nearly 60 percent over that time period we were able to get the law reauthorized and strengthened in 2018. And we've seen like 2017, when it almost got there, we started seeing the dollars increase again. Um, so they've started to trickle back up. Um, there is another funding pool that was completely eliminated called the Juvenile um, Accountability Block Grant um, that had a ton of money put into it. And that was removed um, about six or seven years ago now, um, and is continued to be unauthorized. To, so to my point about the importance of that piece, um, the House has reauthorized it now and passed it. The Senate has not. Um, so that continues to be a zeroed out dollar amount, and that, um, that continues to be a huge chunk. But we really advocate for the dollars to go into those Title II and Title V pools because um, the Title II really holds the state accountable. The Title V really allows for prevention at the local level, which, you know, a kid in a rural community needs things sometimes very differently than children in urban communities. That's really complicated answer, but that's kind of where we are at the federal level. <laughs> um, no, that was great. And how do you think this impacts implementation of policy and practice? Um, I think it's a real threat, honestly. Um, this administration has made it very, very clear 
um, that they don't like the, um, they don't, even though it was, the law was signed by this administration, they don't like the law. And they have um, strongly encouraged states not to participate in the law. So we have gone from having 49 states and all U.S. territories um, participate, and we've dropped that now um, by 10 jurisdictions. And that's a threat to the safety of children everywhere. The role of the federal government should be to ensure that states can have the technical assistance and research and support that they need to comply with federal law. And this administration has not made that commitment. It's been incredibly worrisome. Thank you. Um, do you think it's important for the public to be aware of where these funds are going? And of course, why? Yes, and that's one of the reasons, that's one of the improvements that we made in 2018. We said that states have to actually post with their plan. They're, they have to um, they get, they have to submit to the federal government a three-year plan on how to use the money, um, and that that plan has to be approved by the feds before they get their funding um, and show that they're in compliance with those four core protections. Um, those plans never had to be public. Many states publish them anyway for because of their own state transparency laws. Uh, but now it's required, and it's required that it goes on the federal website, and they have to publish their um, racial and ethnic disparity plans um, as well. That also was hidden kind of in the veil of secrecy that now has to come to light. So two really important pieces um, in terms of, and I think, you know, one thing I want to say is even though the federal government is hesitant to weigh in on youth justice issues, when they have weighed in, it has been so incredibly bipartisan right it's like everyone can get on board with these basic pieces no matter where you stand on the continuum of care so i, I mean on the polit political spectrum so i think that that's really an important thing to underscore here because there's agreement that children need intervention children and their families that get justice involved need interventions and services so that they can get back on the right track so that's actually a perfect leeway into our next question, which is uh, which interventions are the most successful in propelling youth out of the justice system or reincarceration as adults? Um, so what we know works best, um, I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but um, practices that are culturally and community based right so that they are and that they are have a systems systems function level um so you're not just dealing with the child you're dealing with that child in the um in the family system or in their community system right so uh the idea is if you and this is why this has been a big argument why to de-incarcerate right so if i send a child away somewhere else they might get services there and do well but if they're brought home and no one has dealt with the underlying conditions in that family or in that community, you'll see a rapid deterioration of the progress made, right? So I would say that there's been an adoption, much more of a public health model, talking about the fact that community violence is a public health issue and that we need to address it as a public health issue. That also, I think, ties hands in hands with trauma and trauma responses, recognizing that children have Children who are justice involved have higher levels of what we call ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And again, responding to that in a holistic way will reduce your chance of becoming criminally involved in the future. And then lastly, I would say using, using incarceration as the, not the first step in the toolbox, but the absolute last step 
you know, not to quote Newt Gingrich here, but he says all of the time, we have incarcerated children we're angry at instead of children we are afraid of. Um, and so, you know, there are way too many children that are incarcerated um, because we don't have, we haven't invested in the resources in the community to help them. And you'll hear that from almost every director of juvenile justice in the country. Oh, the, the kids in my system, most of them pose no so public safety threat. We just don't have anywhere else to put them. And to take away somebody, deprive a child of their liberty because you don't, you haven't developed a system of care to respond to them is incredibly egregious and offensive. Wow. That's really remarkable to hear. In relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, we were interested in how that might have affected disparities within the incarceration system. Yep, so the Annie E. Casey Foundation just yesterday put out a piece on this. Um, uh, Annie E. Casey has funded um, uh, an initiative across the country called JDAI, which is an um, alternative to incarceration program. And they have worked really closely over the past 30 years um, at the local level to help people understand who they're sending to the system, what else they could be doing instead, um, and, and building out kind of that front end con continuum, right? Um, and they, they surveyed their sites, their JDAI sites that, you know, represent um, places that more than a third of the children in the country live. So you're talking about a pretty significant portion. Um, and we saw great, co in response to COVID, right? We had the advocacy community rallied, got all of the advocates to write to their governors, state courts. We got letters from public health officials, um, from educators, from DJJ heads saying, we should all be getting kids out of um, carceral systems, whether they're pre-trial or post-trial, you know, youth jails or youth prisons. I'm bringing them home as quickly as possible. Like they cannot be protected in facilities, right? Um, and that got movement. It, it appears that that got some movement in early in the pandemic in April and May. Um, Casey reported then that according to their JDI reports, um, that front end, the pre-trial piece dropped by about 26, 24 to 26%. Um, and then the back end, Cumulatively, it was a drop of about 53% from the year before. When, when we dug into, and that was good, right? When they dug into that a little bit deeper, they said mostly that's because referrals have dropped, right? So if you had any, any concern at all that the school to prison pipeline wasn't a real thing, when you close schools, referrals generally drop 24, 26% <laughs> to the courts, okay? That's a big drop. That is a it was actually that two month drop was more than what they were able to get over 10 years of interventions. Okay, so schools are drivers here. The second piece of that is which they just came out with yesterday. It said in as states began to open, we started to lose gains there, right? And so um, children are starting to get arrested. They're not being brought home quickly, and they said it's falling incredibly harsh on children of color, particularly black children. So to my earlier point, that we don't trust that black families can take care of their children, we are seeing that now in the data. And I, and I will point back to OJJDP, who very misleadingly and incorrectly, and I will stand by this 
over and over and over again in solidarity with many public health and research experts out there. Um, their guidance on this said that families are too stressed and basically too poor to take these kids home and kids are safer in custody. And again, when you have the federal government saying that children who pose no public safety threat, it is better to put to deprive them of their liberty than to send them home with the supports, we should all be incredibly alarmed. So we we have uh, we have a couple minutes left, and I just had one closing question, and I wanted to ask, what comes next for the campaign for youth justice? So we're in a we're in a, a bittersweet moment, right? Um, as you asked earlier, we, we've been around 15 years. We were set up as a campaign with a very targeted, you know, goal to end the adultification. Um, we have dropped the number of kids in the adult system by more than 70%. 80% of the states have changed laws. We only have three states left that have to raise the age, and there's momentum in most of them. Um, we have two federal laws now that call for children to get out of adult facilities. Um, and as I said, half the states have changed their automatic transfer laws. So we are actually going to wind down our national operations at the end of this year and call for our funding community to really invest heavily in the states who have yet, who are still driving more than 200 children a year into the adult system. So we are at the point where that is less than 10 states. We are and so we want those dollars that have come to us to really go deeply into those states. Um, the racial disparities in those states are grotesque. Um, and so we need to really focus on them very strategically. So that is what we're doing. That's really exciting. It is. And I'll, I'll be going for a year fellowship to the sentencing project who has agreed um, to take on this work as a body of their work. And so, you know, part of our legacy work will be housing this, um, you know, on a different scale, it's not the same thing, but they will be monitoring the legislation, creating research on it, responding to states um, to make sure that there's not any rollbacks and that we can keep moving forward on the momentum. Excellent, that is wonderful. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, it's phenomenal to hear about, again, all the progress that your campaign has made over the last 15 years. And you can especially see it in terms of state to state policy. Um, that's amazing. And uh, we will be keeping an eye out to see how your legacy continues again with other partnered organizations. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciated chatting with you today. Yeah, and I'm glad that we got to meet you guys this year and, and work together because it's been such a good partnership. Thank you so much. As Marcy mentioned, the Campaign for Youth Justice will be winding down their operations in December. But it's incredible to look back at what they've helped achieve in just 15 years. When the campaign opened, 250,000 children a year were prosecuted as adults. And by 2015, that number had fallen to 76,000, almost a 70% drop. And that doesn't include data from six states who have since raised the age of criminal responsibility to 18. There are now fewer youth sleeping in adult facilities, and with the enactment of the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act and the Youthful Inmate Standard of the Prison Rape Elimination Act, those numbers can get to zero. 22 states have narrowed or ended their automatic transfer laws by returning discretion to judges and eliminating a pathway to the adult system. Even though the campaign is ending, 
their legacy work will continue with the sentencing project, and we very much look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to join us for episode three next week with Maritza Perez of the Drug Policy Alliance. 